Hey Bootstrappers, Steve McLeod here. I'm taking a break for a few weeks, but the Bootstrapped podcast is going on. In my place, Paudi Giulizzoni, founder of Balsamic, is stepping in as temporary host. So keep listening and enjoy today's episode hosted by Paudi. Hello everybody, this is Paudi again, substitute hosting for Steve. Today I'm joined by two of my favorite people in the world, Geraldine De Reuter and Rand Fishkin. But instead of introducing them to you, I will let them introduce each other. Well, that's very generous of you, Peldy. <laughs> Geraldine De Reuter is an award-winning author, blogger, travel writer, and soon-to-be fiction writer as well. She runs the Everywhere's blog, which is an award-winning publication. She won a James Beard Award just a couple of years ago for her writing on Mario Batali's sexual abuse scandal and has continued to contribute wonderful thought pieces in the worlds of feminism, food, travel, lifestyle. And she was also my very first investor at my first company, Moz, supported me for years so that I could bootstrap that business. Thank you, welcome, Geraldine. Randy Fishstein started the company Shalmos. No, what? (laughs) (laughs) This is is the worst. I've gotten a lot of bad introductions, but that one, that takes the cake. Rand Fishkin is an entrepreneur and an author and the love of my life. He started a company called Moz when he was fresh out of college. It was originally SEO Moz, and then it turned into Moz. He started it kind of inheriting it from his mother with a ton of debt and dug it out of debt and turned it into a multi-million dollar successful VC-backed company and then left there several years ago after writing a book about his experiences called Lost and Founder. He's an acclaimed speaker. He's spoken all over the world, everywhere from Australia to Slovenia to um, to all over the UK, all over Europe. And he recently started a new company called SparkToro, which helps marketers in a very new way find the correct audiences that they're trying to target. So it's quite a bit different from SEO Moz and it's a lot smaller and it's doing quite well. And he's also doing something very different with investing. So he's trying to reframe the way we look at investing and maybe get people to consider alternatives to VC. He's also a wonderful cook and he smells really good. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's good to know. It doesn't come across on the podcast, but... It's one of the least important qualities during COVID, but I maintain it anyway. That's very important. Well, welcome, Rand. Thank you. Thank you for having both of us. I'm excited. I don't know if we've ever done a uh, joint conversation like this before. Well, that's because I'm such an innovator in the world of podcasting. This being my second episode that I ever host, I thought, let's just try something different. As the audience can understand now, they probably share my excitement about chatting with you today because I feel like together bring a wide variety of experiences and I'm very excited about just spending half an hour with you and having a chat and catching up. So let's start with this. So the software industry, I feel like has a problem. Well, several problems, but one of them is a bit of exceptionalism. We get all this press about, oh, we're so special, we're the future, software is eating the world, move fast and break things. There's a lot of uh, love for innovation and how software does everything different, right? Unprecedented. But 
I personally don't think that's true. I mean, it's just another type of business. We have employees. Well, so what? The pizzeria downstairs has employees. We, you know, we grow and we have issues. We have customers. We do customer service. We incorporate using the same laws as everybody else. Like it's actually not that different. So having a software person and a non-software person, I'd like to feel like, do you ever talk about the differences and similarities of your businesses? I don't know if it comes up in like a very forthright way like that. I will say that there's a lot of times when we are stunned by what people get away with in the software world. Like it seems like it exists in this parallel dimension where money works differently and where behavior is forgiven in ways that are very strange and different and it's excused in a different way. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the one problem with that the pizzeria has is that every time they want to serve a new customer, they have to make a new pizza. And in software, this is the one big, big difference, right? Is that the same piece of software that helps customer A, helps customer B through Z, helps customer 10,050. And because of that, you get scale and you get a financial, potential financial windfall in revenue and recurring revenue, which, right, Balsamic, your business does and my business does, my old one and my new one. And I think because of that, one of the outcomes is this exceptionalism, this belief that we're so much smarter, we're so much better, we don't have to behave the same way the guys running the pizzeria do, the people in publishing do, the people who make cameras do. But again, publishing, for instance, right? You print in a book, you print another copy, it is scalable the same way. Or I'm thinking pharmaceuticals. You make a drug and you make a thousand pills or a hundred thousand pills. Pharmaceuticals is definitely a good example because you get to keep selling the same pill over and over to someone, right? There you have a subscription, essentially. The only difference is pharmaceuticals are very well regulated. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And software is very unregulated. Why do you think that is? Is it just because software is younger as an industry? I think in part, I think also no one in government really understands how it works, right? You have a bunch of older politicians who just don't fundamentally get it. And I think there was something recently, I can't even remember what it was, but there was some congressperson who had their phone and was talking to Mark Zuckerberg and was like, how does the, you know, Facebook exist on my phone? Like, how does it work on my phone? And they didn't understand that it was an app that was on your phone. Like they didn't understand the fundamental difference. And I think when you have people who don't get that, you're not going to have that regulation, right? right? It's going to be unfettered. Um, And until, which is funny. It's funny because probably a lot of them don't understand women's anatomies, but they're happy regulating. Right, right, exactly. That's just another, (laughs) we could go down that. But I I think that they are happy to let it be kind of the Wild West for right now. The other point that I would like to make is that it's funny because when I speak of software industry, I don't even think of Facebook and Google and the big guys. I live 100% in the world of small one founder, less than $10 million revenue software world, right? Where it's, I guess you could call it indie, you could call it ISVs, you could call it, I don't know. It's mostly the audience of this bootstrap podcast. You know, I forget that the big guys exist. I don't even 
think of them as the software industry. So that's where I see the similarities, I feel, of running a business, a small business like this, like mine, and running a real estate agency, running, you know, right? I feel like that's not that different. We talk about pivoting. Well, lots of businesses have to pivot because you haven't found product market fit, right? All these terms that we think we use, but is it really that different sort of the way to do marketing, right? It's all about talking to your customers, understanding their needs, understanding their mental models, right? Is it really that different? No, I mean, I don't think so. As someone who's kind of looking at it from an outside perspective, I think that when you are running something smaller and you're in touch with your customers and you haven't lost perspective because you're so massive that you're creating, you know, centibillionaires, then it is still a real company. And it is similar to other smaller companies. And that's a good thing. You created the Everywhereist, right? It's you founded the company, you have an online presence and you have to understand your audience in order to cater to them properly, right? All things that we do. And you have a product that you put out regularly, right? I do. It's strange. I don't think of it like that at all. I okay. don't think of it like a business because I guess I don't give it that much credit. I probably should. I probably should give it more credit than I do. That's my own fault. That's my own imposter syndrome. Well, you know what? We get a lot of that in the software yeah. world just as well. <laughs> I feel like it's it's a very common thing. Actually, this actually could be a good segue on my next question for you, which is there's this other myth in the software industry about the founder who's a risk taker and, you know, we have fail fast and pivot. And I just don't see that in my side of the software world. You know, like people like me, we're betting the family on this little thing that has to feed us. I think, Peldi, you say that you get to ignore or relatively not pay attention to big tech, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, et cetera. But I think that unfortunately, in the tech world and in software, those businesses and the investors behind them in particular, they get to set the tone. They get to dictate the culture and the ecosystem that we live in. So even as an indie software founder, it is very difficult to get away from, for example, the idea of product market fit or the idea of retention rate and churn rate the idea of recurring revenue, the idea of scale and growth rate, just, you know, all of these concepts that float around. And then the comparison, right? I think writers do this as well. Writers compare themselves to other writers, to other authors, to other people who've been published and had success. And, you know, software entrepreneurs, we compare ourselves to each other. Peldi, I think you have a unique ability to resist that, but that's not most of us. You're right. You're absolutely right. And it took me many years. And also living in uh, in uh, Europe, I think, uh, is uh, helps me not be on that treadmill. What you just described is what I call the circus, right? There is hyper growth startups. Then there is all the press that goes around it, the TechCrunch, which, by the way, I don't even know if it's, is it still around TechCrunch? Oh, I yeah. don't know, <laughs> right? Then there's all the VCs. It's a whole ecosystem that feeds on itself and needs all this attention and energy in order to continue. And people like us, no one cares about, but we don't really care. We don't want to be in the spotlight. We care about making our customers happy, not getting press. It's so hard to get away from wanting press and accolades and attention and believing that that's connected to serving customers well. 
right? I think right. this is true in your world too. Like being able to say, oh, I don't care what reviews think. I don't care if anyone covers the book. I don't care if it gets attention. I don't care if I get invited anywhere. That's a hard thing to do. Well, and it's not just something internal, right? It's not just something where I'm like, you know what? I can ignore this and be proud of what I've created because all of those things translate to sales, right? A good review somewhere hmm. means that I'm going to sell more books. So right. I can't even ignore it from a pragmatic perspective. So th and this is a difference, I guess, in our world, right? Because Peldi, Balsamic, SparkToro, we can totally ignore 95% of the tech press, which won't send us any business, as opposed to an author where that press will send you business. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, you know, hopefully not, but it could sink something, right? Something truly scathing can really hurt you. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. And, and something that earns you a lot of attention might not get you sales, but it could get you your next deal or right. an introduction or right. a, yeah. yeah. Which is, I guess, true for us as well. I mean, I can understand how, you know, it, it is a, a position of privilege where you say, oh, I already have my audience. And uh, um, and that's enough for me, right? Uh, in in the creative world, there was that famous article by Kevin Kelly, uh, one thousand true fans. Yeah, uh, remember where you say you don't really need a million people to follow yeah. you; just need a thousand people to pay a hundred dollars to spend a hundred dollars on whatever you produce, whether it's merchandise or music or art, uh, a year, and that's a hundred thousand dollars a year. That's a good living, you know. Right, right. But again, it feels like. You can only really do that after you've gone over a certain hump where you do have a tight knit group of fans or, or a community or, or a, a customer base that is sort of loyal to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, going back to your original question around this, why do we have these dominant paradigms or cultural institutions in the software and tech world? And I think that that's driven by incentives, mm -hmm. right? The venture capital industry raises tens, hundreds of billions of dollars, and they need to deploy those funds. And they need to have, you know, millions of entrepreneurs like you and I competing for that money and trying to become the next Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, Uber, WeWork, Airbnb, whatever, or they're not going to have success, right? So they right. need, their model is a thousand of us are going to fail, 990 of a thousand will fail, and 10 of us will turn into Right. interesting companies that actually make the money. And so they need those thousand people to be chasing that dream. Right. Well, so say you don't want to play that game, <laughs> right? And we don't. <laughs> and you guys don't, and I don't. I mean, I kind of want to play it. We'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, let's talk about that now. I mean, what is it enticing for you? I should clarify. I would like to sell books. Okay. I do want to do that. Like I do want to have a successful book. I don't want to do it because I want a lot of money. I want to do it because I want people to read the book I wrote. Right. And if I really try and drill down on that, I guess it sort of starts to become like an existential crisis, right? It's like, well, isn't it enough that you wrote the book? Isn't it enough that you did this, right? Isn't it enough that you did that? And you keep moving the goalposts because clearly it's not. Like, it's not enough to write the book. And then right. it's not enough to get the book deal. Right. Um, and it's not enough to get, you know, a good write-up. It, it needs to be more and more and more. So if I really try and, and dial it down, it becomes almost infinitely regressive. And I don't know, I don't know where. I mean, part I of it is, if people buy your book, 
that must mean that you've written something good and something worthwhile. And you get to write more. Uh, yep. And, you and get that's to kind more. of the thing, right? Like right. if you don't sell the first one, you don't get further, further right. book deals. Whereas I think if you have a company and it fails, you're kind of at least at some point, some people are allowed to keep going. And then it becomes a question of, you know, who's allowed to fail and who isn't and where that lies. And like white male entrepreneurs are allowed to fail a lot. Especially in the United States. Especially in the United States. And it's kind of considered a badge of honor. Oh my gosh. I saw a little Slack video. It was like a promotional video for Slack and this person was saying, oh, here's the history of Slack. And it started as a video game and it failed. But then the investors told our founders, you keep the money, you just try something else. And I was thinking, I bet I can tell what those founders look like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wasn't it Stuart Butterfield, one of the guys who founded Flickr? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that, that's a very good point, Geraldine. Yeah. I don't want to be part of some sort of weird, sick cog. I want to sell my next book. So that I can sell another one, you know? So right. And I feel like it's, you're right. It's just, and it's the same this with software when you're starting up. If you do get written up on TechCrunch, even if you don't want to play that game, it is probably going to, you know, change your, the trajectory of your thing. It, it can enable you to later on do it for the love of the craft. But at the beginning, you do need to play the game a little bit. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's pretty tough as well, knowing, especially knowing as an indie founder and indie dev that your work is not backed by tons of money that will let you, for example, acquire customers at a loss for a long period of time, mm -hmm. right? You have, to, you have to be profitable, but you're competing against probably many people who don't need to have that constraint. Um, you you know that you don't necessarily need the press, but you also don't know whether you're missing out because somebody else is getting it. So it's tough to not play in that world, but be in that world. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Totally. To be completely fair, I can imagine that going the VC route is also not easy, right? You've done both, Rand. Tell us about it. Yes, it is. And it's also a pure ego game, right? Uh -huh. So, so it is, it is playing to your ego. You got, you got an introduction to this fancy partner at this fancy firm that funded these fancy companies that you've heard of. Oh man. You, I remember I, I called Geraldine before we were married, right? And you were my girlfriend. Oh, you know, Sequoia wants to talk to me. I'm going to drive down to their offices in Menlo park and oh my God, I'm on actual Sand Hill road and it's filled with, well, it wasn't filled with Teslas yet because there's no Tesla, but you know, it's filled with whatever fancy Ferraris and shit. And, and then you go to these low slung office buildings with ludicrously attractive young women who man all the desks. And then these old fuddy duddies behind there who schedule you for an hour, but book you in 20 minutes late and wow. then kick you out after 20 minutes. Cause they're not interested. Right. And it's, Sometimes a meeting feels good and you're like, oh, I think they're interested. And then if they don't call you, it, you know, it's a lot like, it's not like romantic dating. It has that sort of ego boosting. Oh, I'm excited because maybe they're into me, but maybe they're not. And will they call? Right. And when they call, will they say, let's have another meeting or <laughs> it's. <laughs> right. 
It's funny because I have a completely different experience with VCs. I mean, the first time I got a call from a VC, my knees were shaking because it was like, these people, I've heard, these people are amazing, right? Right, They they have the key to unlock my future. And then I had another call and another call and another call, and they're all exactly the same. They're all saying exactly (laughs) the same thing. So now I don't even take the call anymore. I say, let's do it via email. Just tell me what makes you special. And they all answered the same exact thing. <laughs> oh man. And then I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a recent thing, but the people that contact us are like 19-year-old, you know, oh, sure. MBA they're, they're graduates like... or 22, right. 25. They're this this the the assistant who has to pitch a million uh, different companies. Yep. Yeah. And they're, they're and so, a lot of them are just intelligence gathering. Right. So like when we yeah. became part of a venture portfolio, one of the things that all those young associates do is they call a lot of companies in the space and then they get data on them. So, for example, you know, at Moz, one of the nice things that we got to know was many of our competitors revenue because our venture firms had associates that reached out and talked to them and got all these numbers so a lot of it is competitive intel gathering under the guise of interest. Exactly. Blech, blech. Sorry. <laughs> I know it's you're shocked. You can't me. believe it. Who in the tech world would be so ethically flexible? Oh, you know, I guess that's their value add that they have. <laughs> Anyways, whatever. Another thing that we have in common as founders of small businesses or, you know, doing something on our own is that you're really your own boss. And that is great. At times. For some of us. Uh, but it's also not so great. Uh, how do we get, especially now that there is, you know, in this in this pandemic, which has brought even more lon- loneliness, how do you guys deal with the ups and downs of the motivation, energy, productivity? If you're a solo founder. I don't experience any of that. It's all great. I'm a wonderful boss. <laughs> Right. Who do you talk to? Is it lonely at the top? I guess you have each other. I know I use my wife a lot. Is it, is, is it lonely at the middle third? Like what? <laughs> yeah, Geraldine struggles with this much more than I do. And interestingly, my co-founder Casey has occasionally mentioned that he struggles with it as well. You know, he and I talk every now and then about how this, you know, the big, a big part of being a founder is managing your own psychology, right? Being able to effectively look at a week that's not going well and not feel 10 times worse than as good as you feel when you have a good week. Being able to see the long-term, right? To be able to look back over six months or 12 months of progress and say, hey, we have come a long way. I look at the draft that I had six months ago and that was a piece of crap and look, today, it's much, much better. I look at the piece of software we had. I look at the revenue run rate we had. I look at the number of customers. I look at whatever, the content we've created. And I say, oh, okay, I can see that even though each individual day might feel good or bad, over time it compounds. That works. But we in software, we have this ability to ship even little things. And so we have a feedback loop, right? It's not like Geraldine can ship two pages at the time of the book. No, that's, that's exactly it. So it's very insular, right? Like you spend all this time alone with this manuscript and there is no feedback. And I could be getting feedback along the way, but it wouldn't make sense because it's like, well, here's a fragment of a chapter. 
And here's another fragment. And I guess I could be sending it to my agent, but when I've done that historically, she's like, I need more. I don't, you know, I, I want the whole thing. And when I feel really down, I'll write a blog post and that'll kind of make me feel, you know, more. So that you can ship it and get feedback on it and, and get a boost that way. Yeah. And right. I am very project oriented and I'm very much a completionist. So I need to do that. I need to feel like I've completed something. Working on a big project is, is agonizing for me. It's really, really hard. And I think the other thing that's really difficult is I am this extrovert who's been stuck at home for a year and stuck inside my own head for a year. And I'm very good at being accountable to other people, but not good at being accountable to myself. And so there are days when I wake up and I haven't accomplished what I want to. And I realize that the thing that's holding me back from that is me. Uh, great. Awesome. And, and that sends me down a spiral. So, you know, this poor guy walked by and I'm just sobbing and he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, well, I'm an abject failure. Right? <laughs> like, that's what's wrong. Like, you want to know what's wrong. The thing that I have set out to do with my life, I have failed to do it. Like, what could be more terrible than that? So it's, I'm just insufferable. Nobody wants to hang out with like a writer who doesn't like themselves. Oh my God. Not in first draft mode. Geraldine, this is, this is great. Oh my God. Oh, I don't even want, This is wonderful because it confirms that we're not that special in software because we have exactly the same issues. Um, When you're building, (laughs) especially, especially if you're building a 1.0 of a product, it's going to take you a year. It's going to take you two years and you have zero feedback about it, right? You can't ship it at all. Now, one thing that helped me back in the day was to have a group of four or five peers who were also working on their 1.0 and also struggling for a year and couldn't ship anything. And we would constantly show each other fragments and crap, but at least everybody was doing the same thing. So the expectations were were good. Is there such a thing as like a writer group? To, oh, you mean my happen? secret? You mean my secret woman's writers cabal that I, you know, oh, you do have blood one. pack to never speak about. Oh, no, okay. that doesn't exist. Oh, why can't you? Wouldn't that help? No, honestly, having uh, writers groups has been. And Rand knows. I think that there's nothing that saved my sanity more in the last couple of years. And, and that's what you need to do. That's what I highly encourage anyone to do, right? Find your people. Right. You get accountability, you get unconditional, yeah, constructive feedback, loving feedback. Yeah. And even if you're not comfortable sharing your work, right? Even if it's just, Hey, like, let's make a, like, what are your goals for this week? What are you doing? Right. Like, let's, you know, right. share that just via email, just kind of mm. this, you know, acknowledgement of what we're doing. And I think right. just that feels grounding in a way. All right. What do we call those in the software industry now? Mastermind groups? Oh, God. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know the terminology. I think, oh. I think you're, you might be right. Yeah, I call them <laughs> friends. Yes, yes. Remember that concept? <laughs> I mean, I think this is one of the, the things that's challenging, right, is that the software industry has to deal with the sort of historically toxic masculine 
environment that we all culturally grew up in where you're not supposed to have whatever close friends that you talk about your emotions with. And so you have to have podcasts in order to have these kinds of discussions, right? And you have to have mastermind groups and you have to have, you know, whatever participatory communities where you pay $500 a year to be part of this exclusive group of other entrepreneurs like you and you're a very special hand-selected crowd, but it's so that you can have a peer group. And, and that's, for whatever reason, it's tough for men to build. Right now you have a co-founder. Do you and Casey do this for each other? Yeah, I think a little bit. And Casey's, I don't, I don't know exactly how to describe him. He is definitely most of the time more. He's a grumpy old man trapped in a young man's body. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good description of Casey. But um, he, I would say he's very willing, able, and happy to put his head down and just sort of work on a problem for a long time solo. And then when he's ready, he wants to have a conversation about it and not often before, you know, right now he's working on like all this demographic data in SparkToro. And he's basically just like, don't email me, don't talk to me, no calls, no meetings. I'll tell you when I'm ready to talk again. He's in the flow, okay. I see. That's great. Okay, okay. All right, well, that's good. I would say that there's a bit of stoicism there. Yeah. But he also has very good boundaries and he doesn't have a problem with you expressing emotion. And I think that's what's critical. I think, you know, yeah. he is not outwardly perhaps as mm -hmm. expressive as you, but he doesn't police how you are. Yeah. And I think that that empathy and understanding is what's really important. And you both have that for each other. So I think that's a big reason of why it works. But we're, we're good. I mean, this is one of the things I think is so incredibly difficult. And I have a tremendous amount of empathy and sympathy for Geraldine because, and, and writers of all kinds, because in those creative endeavors, right, Peldy, you are doing it solo. It is just you and the work. And you don't have someone like that who's, you know, helping to hold you accountable until you get your editor and you've, right. you've got your publisher agreement, right? You don't have someone to have those conversations about the work, right? So Casey and I can bounce things off. If things aren't feeling good to either of us, we can have a talk. Right. If I told him, hey, I need to have a call with you this afternoon because I'm just feeling in the mud, he would absolutely take it and he'd help me, right? And this is, I think, one of the reasons that one of the few very good pieces of advice that even the venture capital tech industry gives is find yourself a co-founder. Yeah, well, as a solo founder, I know. I'm proud. My solution is to uh, have a very good friend who also owns his own business. He has a, a graphic design consulting business. Um, and we do a quarterly meeting with each other nice. where for one hour I will uh, talk and the other hour he talks and we have the same structure. It's a one-on-one -on -one review and we give ourselves goals for the next quarter. And we have a work session and a personal session, section, mm, nice. which is mostly about what, you know, how much weight do we want to lose <laughs> in the next quarter. But that's been very easy and very, very good for me. So it's, it's a good substitute. Even if he doesn't know the everyday ups and downs of the business, we do, uh, you know, once a quarter is, is good enough, I feel like. I mean, this is a tough thing. I feel like there are a lot of founders and people who work solo who try and do this with their partner, their romantic partner. Um, and I don't know how yeah, it is. No, no, my wife has heard a lot about. about right, yeah. And I, I don't know how it is for for you, you and Ryan, but for Geraldine and I, we sort of discovered, I, I can't remember what, when it was. I think it was the first year 
of Spark Toro, where Geraldine was like, I don't want to hear anymore about how Spark Toro is is going. Oh, like not doing. I I want to I want to qual qualify or, or okay. Or you you tell that. exactly <laughs> what it was. <laughs> it was every day you would wake up and be like, oh, honey, I don't know. And I was like, okay. After like a after like three months, I was like, dude, it. You either need to tell me more good news or just stop with the doom and gloom because I know it's not that bad. And so uh, we had to put some boundaries. But now he doesn't even tell me good stuff. So yeah, it can be draining on the receiving end because uh, you have all that empathy. So you feel, and you don't know the details. So you might think that it's even a bigger deal than it is, right? Well, so Rand does frame things as being worse than they are. We have uh, like he is dramatic. a very harsh judge. And <laughs> on the flip side, you know, he has to deal with me. I'm like, I don't want to hear about how. Spark Toro's having a rough day. And then I come to him just abject, like existential crisis of what am I doing with my life? Right. Right. I have right. failed, you know? So, which is fair. That's fair what we do. Yeah, I think I it's agree. balanced. I agree. You so gotta go okay. balance. Well, listen, time is flying. So I wanna wrap up with uh, a couple of uh, uh, very practical questions. So, Geraldine, I'll start with you. Okay. Completely unrelated to everything that we've been talking about. But I am in a position now that my company is growing and we put out a lot of content, blog posts, newsletters, the website is uh, growing in number of pages, etc. And we feel like we should hire a professional writer or a professional editor. Okay. Now, we don't have enough work for two people. We think we barely have enough work for one person. Does one person that can do both editing and writing exist? Who's creating your content now? Mostly me. Okay. Uh, and then we have a couple of people in the, we have an education team and they do a lot of writing. How much time is that taking of those people's schedules? Uh, I don't know. Not, not a lot. I think maybe we put out, I don't know, five new pieces of content a month. And do you want to continue to do that? Do you want to up the increase? We want to make it better. And also we like, for instance, we have uh, some tweets that we schedule out to okay. post, you know, and we don't know what we're doing. Okay. We, want, we want somebody who is good at writing tweets yeah. and, uh, and can, you know, can create 20 of those, you know, quickly or. Yeah. And also we've been scrappy for 12 years. Now we're a little more mature. We want to look a little better. We want to catch more typos than we do right now. Yeah. I think you could hire, I mean, if you have the budget and if you want to, I think you could hire a, a content manager who would create in-house content and kind of oversee your brand messaging and write tweets or copy edit the tweets that you do have going out, kind of create some consistency of messaging across right. the board and either take over, if the blog posts aren't too technical, I assume that they might not be, I don't know. Some of them are about UX, so you have to know what this is about, but okay. other ones are about our company culture. You know, we can have a conversation five minutes and then this person okay. can write about it, I think. Okay, so that might be that might be a little trickier, you know, taking over the company culture stuff. That that might be easier. Finding someone who could write right. specifically about UX, you're getting into a specific skill set there, so that might be right. slightly more. But they could edit what 
we they could, could edit, edit exactly. And then write so the, the job title is called content manager. Uh, you could have a, yeah, I would say a content and it could even be like content slash brand manager or okay something like it that. could be content slash social media manager. Yeah, that's okay. what I was thinking too. Okay. We wrote a set of guidelines for writing. That's perfect. And, and, and they're pretty good, but they could probably take them over and improve them, right? Exactly. Yeah, they would they would probably kind of refine your your voice stock right. and just make it a little bit cleaner. And, and that can help basically everyone at the company when they're right. creating content as well. It would depend on what you wanted, but that could be a part-time or a full-time position. Interesting. One concern that I have is that once we have this person, does it mean that everything has to be approved by them? in order to go out? Because if so, they can never take vacation. And I don't like that. No, it doesn't. But um, you get to design it, man. Yeah, you get you really get to communicate with them about that. Do it in the job description. Understand that if a tweet goes out, and there's a typo, they might be upset by that. Or if something happens, And I don't think that your company culture would reflect on this. So I think it would be fine. If something happened and something went out and it was a problem and it wasn't cleared by them, that could create some friction. Yeah, of course, we'd have to set the expectation that we're not going to blame you if you weren't involved. Yeah, exactly. I I mean, to be honest, for me, one of the things that we did at Moz in the early years was I had someone who was content and social media manager, and that person did not review everything that I published. But she would let me know when I made a mistake or when something needed to be edited. She would just like go back and edit my stuff after oh, nice. it had come out. Yeah. Nice. And that we just we just had a comfortable agreement. We knew that, hey, Rand likes to publish at 1 a.m. He likes to say, you know, share right. stuff unedited. So that's fine. Just make it clear up front. And there's trust because you were the head of the company. I will mm-hmm. say the only time that this has ever come back in a way that bothered me was... I was the copy editor on something on a big project um, and the exec didn't run something by me. And then we were in a meeting and there was a very blatant copy editing problem and they blamed me. Oh, come on. Yeah. And it was really, and it was fine. They could have just ignored it, but they were like, oh, copy editor because they didn't want to be embarrassed that that just feels bad you know that That feels i didn't care but it felt uncomfortable so don't make sure you can avoid those situations but i don't think you ever would because you guys are a good supportive company so the the, this guy's name rhyme with uh pilon rusk (laughs) (laughs) it does not if you want more tips on what the job description what yeah, if you, include, if you want to send, send us, it to us, yeah. yeah, send us the the job description. We'd be happy to look. Hey, it don't over. don't forget we're on a podcast. You just made an offer to all the listeners. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, last question because really we're over time. But I want to give Rand just one minute to pitch Spark Toro because it's still a new service, and specifically how. Can it be useful to bootstrappers who don't have a lot of money? Do you guys have a deal or a way for for people to try it? We have about 35,000 people who use the product today. We've only been around for a year, but 34,400 of those people use the free version. 
And so you can go to SparkToro and just try it and play with it for free. And the, the biggest thing that I would recommend for folks is if you can find a way to describe the audience you want to reach. Wait, wait, wait. What is it? What is SparkToro? What is it? How, how can it help? Yeah, yeah. So that's this is exactly what it is. If you have a way to describe your potential customers, like I sell software to architects, I sell software to indie game developers, I sell okay. software to fiction authors, I, whatever it is, whatever you're making. If you can describe your audience, your potential customers, the people you want to reach, SparkToro can give you lots of information about them. They can tell SparkToro can tell you which podcasts they listen to, what YouTube channels they subscribe to, what press publications they read, what websites they visit, what social accounts they follow. And then you can go do marketing of all kinds, advertising, paid, organic marketing, outreach, pitching, pitch to be on their podcast, right? Uh, of all kinds in those places, and then reach the people who really matter. Geraldine, for example, was working with the Seattle Rep Theater Company. She's on the board. Of, she's on the board there, and the, the the Seattle Rep is looking for. Hey, how do we reach people and tell them that we're coming back next year and get theater audiences involved? Oh, Spark Toro can tell us. You know who is a theater patron. You can plug in something like the Seattle Rep social account and see. Here's what people who follow theater in Seattle also read, listen to, watch, follow, pay attention to. Now I can go do marketing in those places. Yeah, so you find the, the sort of the thought leaders or the influencers for your audience so that then you can learn from them or pitch to them or pay them, advertise with them. and Sure, or plug them in as a, yeah, plug yeah. them into your Facebook ad campaign, whatever right. it is. Um, but yeah, so I think of influencer tragically as like half naked people who take off their shirt around beaches and have six yeah, packs. Yeah, yeah. Which not, we have no not problem the Instagram with. influencer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. SparkToro doesn't help you with that. Okay, that no, <laughs> but we will tell you, hey, here's this niche publication that UX professionals read and so mm -hmm. balsamic. Maybe you want to think about sponsoring that publication. Maybe you want to think about pitching mm -hmm. it. Maybe your new content person should write an article for that publication. Nice, that nice. That kind of stuff. And so there's a free plan. How does that work? All you need is an email address. You just okay. start you, searching, plug in your email, and you can get a free SparkToro account. How is it limited compared to the paid one? Yeah, the results are limited, and you get 10 oh, okay. searches a month for free. Okay, that's a lot. I, yeah, 10, a lot. That of, seems like a this lot. This is why yeah. a lot of people... So we, we made the free plan much more generous when the pandemic hit. Because oh, um, we were basically like, oh, man, not you know nobody's going to have any money to buy this thing. Mm -hmm. Because back in March, April, we were panicking right plus it was it's a it's a new it's a fairly new service it's totally right? new there's yeah, no yeah. word to describe what we do yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's a little challenging right 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 and it's a very applicable to lots of people so it's kind of hard to market right because it's it's a horizontal. positioning is a real challenge right, right? like for geraldine's book you know you have you know who your audience is going to be for spark toro Oh man, the New Zealand Board of Economic Trade and Development is right. a client, and mm -hmm. so is people who like marshmallows. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. I I'm for, I, I would talk to you for hours, but that's all the time we have for today. So thanks again, Geraldine Rand, for being on the show. It was our pleasure, Peldy. We anytime you want to do this again, audience or no, you just let us know. <laughs> Lovely, wonderful. All right. That concludes this episode of Bootstrapped. You can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm.